Hello and welcome to the Elevate Music podcast. I'm Lucy Heyman and in this episode I'll be speaking to musician and psychotherapist Chula Gunawardena about his experiences with addiction whilst working as a professional drummer. We'll also hear from psychotherapist Adriana Irvine who'll be telling me a bit about the work that she does and also about the charity Music Support. So first of all let's hear from Chula. I heard Metallica for the first time when I was 12 and it just completely changed my life and I started playing electric guitar in bands and then that went on into my late teens and when I was about 19 I switched to the drums found myself in a band where we worked really hard to get ourselves a record deal it did really well at the beginning and then I guess we're going to go on to what happened next. But I still play today. I've got a couple of bands that I kind of do bits and bobs in, but it's largely just for fun. It was around the height of the Nirvana thing and Heroin Chic, and it was about. And I'd had quite a long history of recreational drug use, daily drug use when it came to cannabis, and tried pretty much everything without it becoming a problem. And I therefore decided that trying heroin arrogantly, I felt that I wouldn't get addicted and I'd be able to mess around with it and be okay. But unfortunately, that that wasn't the case. and became addicted within a couple of months. And that happened before the band even had signed the record deal. The period of years, I think from 20 to 25, really, the heroin addiction took hold. And as we were progressing with the music... And things were getting better and better and we're doing bigger shows and we recorded an album that never got pressed up. My addiction got considerably worse to the point where the band was a bit of a mess and we got dropped by the record label. And then at the age of, I think, 25, 26, around there, I found myself with no band, no qualifications, no career and a raging heroin habit. Could we look at the support that you had around you before everything started. Could you tell me a bit about that? Well, with regards to support, there basically wasn't any. So the record company didn't really care what we were doing. If anything, I think they found it quite entertaining that we were involved in this kind of druggy rock and roll lifestyle. I don't know if they were fully aware of the extent of it, but they certainly didn't question any behaviour, even when it was quite odd or difficult or unproductive actually because I remember there were times when we were recording the album in the studio that we had to go out and score telling them that we were going out for some KFC and then uh, we didn't come back for about four or five hours which was on record company time so you know things like that happened and nobody really said anything I didn't really feel that there was any support of any kind it just wasn't even entered into that we might have a problem and might need help Nobody had that conversation with us. Our manager was, I guess, just getting more and more annoyed with the unmanageability of it. And that was expressed, but not from a perspective of support or care. It was a kind of, you know, you need to get your act together and get this album recorded or get this gig done or, you know, you can't go into uh, an interview, you know, gouching out, you know, stuff like that. I didn't feel there's any support. I had a lot of good friends, you know, a lot of my friends from school 
who weren't involved in the music industry were still around and they did try to help me. That was the only support I really had and obviously my family, but my family were kind of at the end of the line with me because I'd had some quite, I'd been quite troublesome for a long period of time since my early teens. So my family, even though they were supportive, they were at their wits end and my friends who were non-addicts and not in the music industry, they tried to help and they tried to say, you know, are you okay, that kind of stuff. But I wasn't really ready to listen at that point. What kind of support do you think could have made a difference at that point? If there was somebody who knew what they were talking about, a professional like myself, who was able to come along and say, you're addicted to heroin, this is very serious... And I appreciate you maybe having fun, but this could all end very badly. And actually, it could cost you your career. Because you've got to remember, my dream from, you know, when I first picked up electric guitar when I was about 11 or 12, you know, around that age, my dream was to be in a band and live the life of a musician. It was everything I'd ever lived for. And I sacrificed all my academic experiences. I'd just, you know, done nothing at school all because I was just playing music all the time and taking a lot of drugs. And if someone had said to me, look, if you carry on like this, you're going to lose your career. And actually, there is a way out of addiction and we can support you, we can help you. There are people that can show you how to become manageable around your drug use. Then I probably would have been interested because there were definitely times where it was very out of control. The worst thing for a heroin addict is, and this does happen quite often, is when you score and you've been ripped off. So if you're starting to withdraw from heroin and then you go and score and you get sold some brick dust or rat poison, the feeling at that point of despair and desperation is just so overwhelming. I mean, you don't cry because you're so numbed out, but you feel like you want to cry. And if someone had stepped in at at points like that and said, look, there's some help here. You know, things can change. You can be better. You can get better. I definitely would have listened, but nobody did. To what extent do you think the music industry environment continued that behaviour? It was partly due to everyone around us being very focused on our productivity. So wanting us to remain productive and play the shows, record the album, do what we had to do. So they weren't really focused on our emotional state. Nobody really asked us how we were. I think that was also a very cultural thing. So people really didn't talk about their vulnerabilities and it was all very rock and roll. This is great. We're having a great time. We're strong and we're powerful and we're a really cool band. I think on another level, there was pressure to be cool and not show any vulnerability, even from within ourselves. You know, we didn't want anyone to see and we didn't really feel vulnerable, I don't think, apart from at moments like I just described. For the most part, felt like we were on top of the world because we had this record due and we were taking loads of drugs and doing the usual stuff and it was all fantastic as far as we were concerned. But we didn't see what was around the corner. And I think, again, that the music industry, there is a shift in culture needed because... We don't think about what could be around the corner. We just think everything's okay now, let's just keep it rolling. And in my experiences working with artists as a therapist, I've had to speak to managers and say, look, you can't do this or you can't do that or you need to cancel a few shows or you need to reduce this or reduce that because of that perspective. In your work as a musician, did you see any other musicians 
in other bands or other people you came across struggling from similar issues at the time? I would say that the scene that my band was in, there were quite a few bands who were using heroin. So everyone was doing a bit of this and a bit of that, but there were a kind of collective around the Camden area and in that particular movement and genre. Some of those people were more chaotic than others. Some of those people became addicted and some of those people didn't. But within that, there were definitely quite a few that became casualties. I don't think from that particular crew anybody died, but I do know that there's people who are still in their active addiction. So could you tell me a bit about your road to recovery? If I go back to when we got dropped by the record label, I was left with pretty much nothing. And unfortunately, what happened after that was I got worse. I was building a tolerance and not really taking any breaks from it. So I was using more. I was on methadone. I got a methadone script and I got quite a high script. So I managed to con my doctor out of a really big dose because I was splitting it with my girlfriend at the time. And I started doing less and less in terms of a life and music as well. And I just became a heroin addict, really. And then I started stealing, stealing from my parents, stealing from my places of work and doing things that I would never even think of doing now. I was in this place of desperation. And I was fortunate enough that my mum realised that I was in a mess and she said, look, I'll pay for you to see a counsellor. And I ended up with this psychotherapist who had some knowledge of addiction and he slowly drip-fed me the idea of going to 12-step meetings and perhaps going to treatment. And with his support, it took a couple of years actually of regular sessions, he managed to get me to a place where I actually thought it was my great idea and I went into treatment and was lucky enough to go to a really, really good 12-step rehab in Wiltshire and did a few weeks there and then went to their second stage in Clapham, came into the 12-step fellowships, did meetings every day for, you know, at least two years. I've carried on up until now working a 12-step program uh, and remaining completely abstinent from all mind-altering substances. And through that process, I managed to arrest my addiction But then what happened was all the underlying trauma started to come up and it was manifesting in various different aspects of my life and I knew that I had to deal with it, so I engaged with one-to-one therapy. I think I was about two years clean at the time and I got a job and got into a relationship at the same time and I think I started a new band as well. It was about the time that I started playing music again because I did have a break from it. And ever since then, you know, my life's just gone from strength to strength and I've got better and better. I've had to do a lot of therapeutic work. I'm still in therapy now. I've had a few breaks, but I still have regular therapy now. And then I trained as a psychotherapist myself in uh, 2010, completed in 2014 and opened my own private practice. How was it going back to music after such a long break? Did you find you associated it with any of the the times previously? Well, I didn't really realise how much the drugs were entwined and enmeshed, really, with my music, my life of music. And I didn't really realise that I'd never played drums sober. I'd always been on heroin when I was playing drums. And the first gig I did, it was at the Bull and Gate. And I remember sitting on the drum stool on the stage and my legs were shaking so much I couldn't control them. Luckily for me, as soon as the 
you know, the first note hit, I was all right and I just got into it and actually had one of the best gigs I've ever played in my life. It was amazing. And since then I played in a recovery band, like people in the fellowship and we played in conventions. We went over to a world convention and played in Barcelona. We played at the Dead Sea for a European convention. You know, it opened me up to a whole new range of different types of music, playing different types of music because we were a covers band. Something that I said I'd never do, but in recovery, it's been great for me. And then I set up another band and I recently started jamming with two friends of mine who I played with in my very first band when I was about 13, which is really nice. Did the process of getting clean affect your relationships? I think the process of realising that addiction is fundamentally an intimacy disorder and that a lot of my addiction was about avoiding or enhancing feelings and definitely avoiding my vulnerabilities. I had to face that. And that manifests quite significantly in the most intimate relationships that you have. So your family relationships and the relationship that I have with my wife definitely is where a lot of my dysfunctional trauma-related aspects came to light because they weren't being subdued by active addiction so I had to deal with all of that stuff but the flip side of dealing with it is that I've managed to create really positive healthy loving caring trusting and safe relationships with all the people in my life and even with the people who I had fractured relationships when I was using I've gone back and been able to mend some of those breaks and mend the difficulties, especially with my dad, actually, that was a big one, because we pretty much hated each other, were at each other's throats for many years, just always fighting, always fighting and blaming each other for everything. But in my recovery, we were able to take the gloves off, really, and form a really strong and significant bond uh, before he passed away. How do you stay physically and mentally healthy now? Mentally healthy, I have regular one-to-one therapy, I have monthly clinical supervision, I have a lot of peers in recovery who I speak to, I have a sponsor who takes me through the 12 steps and is always there when I need him. I have some mentors in the therapy field that are really supportive. I have amazing friends and number one and number two are my wife and my stepdaughter. They just have given me so much love and acceptance and care and through the building of those two relationships really they keep me sane you know they look after me when things are difficult and that's been everything for me and I also you know I still love music and I love playing and you know and I'm always looking for new stuff so that keeps me sane I would say physically I probably need to do a bit more since I gave up cigarettes, I've been dipping into the sugar probably way too much. I can't resist a good biscuit. So I, I probably need to uh, get in the gym, do some swimming or um, get back to doing my Tai Chi because I used to do a lot of Tai Chi and that kept me physically well in, in early recovery. Since I got so busy, I haven't done so much. Drumming helps, but I'm not doing it enough for it to have an impact. We spoke before about the music industry environment. If um, there was an artist starting out now, what advice would you give them in terms of staying healthy in a music industry environment? I would say, first of all, be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself about how you really feel and what's really going on for you. 
and from that position have healthy boundaries. That's the key. And if you do that, I think that if you're a non-addict, you'll probably be all right. If you're an addict and your addiction is untreated and you do have underlying trauma, then I would say seek professional help. The sooner you seek professional help, the sooner you'll get better. It's really as simple as that. So your music career was obviously incredibly challenging at times, but I just wondered if looking back, you can tell me, despite all of that, something that you really loved about it. I love the fact that I survived. A good friend of mine overdosed and died earlier this year. A client of a colleague overdosed and died last Thursday. Another friend of mine who's a guitarist died at Christmas time. There's been plenty of casualties along the way and I see them all the time in my work. So really what I love most about my life so far is the fact that I survived it. Don't get me wrong, I loved heroin, but I didn't like the consequences that came with it and I didn't like who it turned me into. I had great times, you know, at the beginning of that band and, you know, we, we did some really great shows and wrote some really cool music and, and had a good time, but... Unfortunately, my addiction took over. And I guess from the point where it started being destructive in my everyday life and with my career, that was the point where I lost the love for everything, really. And I'm just really, really grateful and pleased that I got it back. This episode of the Elevate Music podcast is supported by Help Musicians, an independent charity that's been supporting musicians for nearly 100 years. Through an integrated programme of health and welfare and creative funding opportunities, the charity offers a lifetime of support when it's needed most. For more information on Help Musicians or to find out how to access support, visit helpmusicians.org.uk. Thank you to Musoid, Alana Henderson, Women Produce Music and everyone on Twitter for your comments and support. We really appreciate it. Remember, you can follow us and get in touch at Elevate Music Pod on Twitter and Instagram, or you can email us at elevatemusicpod at gmail.com. Now let's hear from Adriana Irvine. Could you tell me about some of the problems that you see working with musicians? Wow, yes. I mean, I saw more, obviously, when I was in the industry. And much has changed since I left in 98, particularly technologically. But actually, us human beings haven't really changed that much. And I think there's a lot of loneliness on the road, particularly crew and musicians. I think the pressures are enormous, both to be creative. And again, I'm not differentiating necessarily between musicians and crew. Performance anxiety, obviously, for the musicians. The emotional turbulence of being away from home and constantly traveling and very little sleep and all the very highs and then also the lows that people don't talk about. The work pressures, the social and cultural pressures when traveling so much. And then I think ultimately the identity issues of, you know, when they make it, if they do, what are they like privately as well as publicly? And then if they don't make it, what do they do? So I think the pressures are huge. Could you tell me a bit about your work with musicians with addiction? Yes. In both my private practice, so usual psychotherapy, I'm I'm quite classically trained. So a lot about the unconscious and childhood trauma and relationships is my kind of specialty. But in rehab, I just got back last year from five years of working in Florida. I was headhunted to go and work in a very high-end addictions rehab. My specialties are more what we would call the process addictions, the substance misuse disorder, as I think it's now called, which is the alcohol and drugs. To my mind, is huge 
but it is more of a tip of the iceberg because once you take those away, you get into the behaviours, the thinking, the feeling, all of the stuff that really fuels and powers the addictions in the first place. So in a rehab situation, which I now don't do, having left Florida last year, it was, you know, full-on groups, etc., 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 and now it's in private practice. So not quite such crisis-driven But if there is a crisis, then I know who to get, you know, where to go. I mean, music support by the industry for the industry is really the the great help too. Have you seen any differences in the way that the US deals with this issue compared to the UK music industry? I feel sad over here that because we have all the potential, all the talent, both in the music business and in the therapeutic world and the medical world, But we don't tend necessarily to wear our heart on our sleeve and go and get the help that we need. In America, it's perhaps that, you know, the pendulum has swung the other way. They'll shout help before they even actually know necessarily what's going on. We could learn a lot from each other. They really understand addiction and recovery. They really do. It's quite medicalized, which is a little scary. And I think we could learn a lot from that. We're doing our best. We have some great people working in this part of the therapeutic world. We really do. Good psychiatrists who really know what they're talking about when it comes to addiction. Um, Good therapists. So in your work, how common would you say a story such as Tula's is among musicians? I wish I could say it wasn't, but and it wouldn't necessarily be the, his particular drug of choice that he talked about, but the use of drugs, the use of substances, the use of behaviours, extremely common. And can you tell me more about the other substances and the other behaviours that you mentioned there? Usually the kind of the perfect storm that animates into addiction And I have to say, I've actually never met a stupid addict or an addict that didn't have amazing talents. But I think the substances get layered on top of an inability necessarily to to feel good about oneself, to feel talented, to feel clever, to feel needed and wanted, you know, all of those things. I'm not really saying anything that we don't all know. I don't know Tula's particular childhood, but I would imagine there would have been, you know, issues there because there are for most of us. Could we talk about alcohol for a second? Do you see many problems um, surrounding alcohol? Because obviously that's a substance that's freely available backstage and on riders. Yes, I do. Um, Not necessarily because I want to be anti-alcohol, but because I think it's just such an acceptable part of everything that people have lost sight of the misuse of it. You know, there's a hell of a proportion of musicians that do report alcohol problems. It's readily used out in the public. You know, it's not illegal, nor should it be over a certain age. There are real issues with it. And the latest neuroscience explains that in the unconscious where addiction takes place, actually our brains can't tell the difference between drugs or alcohol. How would someone be able to identify if their drinking was becoming a problem? Do you know, that's such a good question. It's actually quite a simple answer. The truth is they're going to feel differently about themselves and alcohol on a day-to-day basis. But overall, let's say we gave them 28 days to have a look at their consumption. They will know that at certain times in certain places, all bets are off. They don't know where they're going to end up, when they're going to be able to stop. And other times it's more manageable because addiction isn't really about the substances. It's an illness of feelings and appetites. And for our inability to control or enhance or annihilate or tweak certain feelings, we will feed or starve an appetite. So we know if you have a standard of integrity and you watch yourself more often than you choose to really recall, dip below that when you were 
really economical with the truth about where you were and what you were doing and who you were with. We know that alcohol doesn't cause this kind of stuff, but it can fuel it in the hands of somebody who potentially has lots of stuff going on. So would you agree with Chula that issues of this kind are quite prevalent in musicians? Yes, I would. And why do you think that is? I think for all the good reasons of the talent and the kind of the one-offness about most musicians, the charisma, the magnetism, all of that, the will to be creative, the artistic bent, all of that. And I think also for sadder reasons where I think often what goes to make a really superb musician is feeling the angst, the sadness, the disenfranchisement from a group or a tribe and finding it in the music business. Could you tell me a bit more about that? You know, I grew up in the military, so I'd lived in 26 houses by the time I was 16. When I went out on the road in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, we would have a universal touring crew of 120, 150 people. We would travel the world for a year or more. We might swell in local venues if we were in Argentina, let's say. We might River Plate Stadium for nine days back to back. We might swell to 300. But these were guys, and I was often, there were only like 10 or 15 women on the road and (laughs) the other 80 were men. It was like being in the military in a way. You'd get posted to the next place. I mean, we were so entitled. A laminate got you into every nightclub you ever tried to get to. I mean, it was a fantastic lifestyle. If you didn't care about sleep, you didn't care about food, you worked as hard as you liked, you had an absolute ball, and then it just gets old. And it gets old, for me, not over months, but almost overnight. Chula was talking about how he didn't feel that his record label or manager at the time was particularly supportive. Do you think things have changed? Well, I think it's on a very individual basis. I'm about to see somebody whose manager is the person who booked the appointment. And that was a very interesting take on it. That's new to me. And wow, that makes me optimistic and hopeful. I think it's probably very true what Chula was saying. I myself, about 10 years ago, tried to help a musician whose management I'd been involved with sort something out before they went back out on the road. They're no longer here. So I would really pray for the changes. I think in certain pockets and areas, you know, it's people are people irrespective of the business they're in. And some of us are just more emotionally intelligent and tuned and brave. You know, when you're really famous, no one's going to call you out. And if they did, you'd probably fire them. Could you tell me a bit more about that for a second, what that does to somebody? Well, I think on an organic level, I actually think it changes their brain chemistry. Um, I mean, I think they get a sense of being invincible. And wow, we know that they're not. I often say to clients I've worked with in rehab, if we both walk to that window and jump, guess what? We're both going to hit the ground. You're not going to sprout wings. I think the ability to believe that you can have it all and life tells us you can't. But I think, unfortunately, and these are not the good stories, because there are some amazing recovery stories. You know, there's musicians I've worked with who are public about their recovery, and I really thought I would go to their funerals, and I am astounded that they did it. So the recovery stories, like Chula's, are phenomenal. And you then find out it's not that they become someone else, they become who they were really supposed to be. The addiction is just a dark alley that takes them away from who they're supposed to be. Where there's life, there is hope. How do you think we prevent those musicians in that situation from reaching that crisis point? Well, I think intervention is everything. It's a big word. But I think having the tour managers, the crew. I think we get everybody aware, which I think more and more and more we are. You know, surviving childhood is traumatic, actually. 
So having people really aware and, and people... They don't have to become therapists. You know when someone is too thin. You know when someone looks like they haven't slept. You know when someone's jittery. You know when someone keeps rubbing their nose. You know when someone's pupils are distended or dilated. I mean, you know. You know. You may not want to compute the information, so go and find somebody who can compute it. I mean, Music Support has backstage areas at every huge festival, and they did a roaring trade, let me tell you, this summer. They really did, of, of people able to show up and go to 12-step meetings, ask for help, call the helpline, all of that stuff. It's all out there. So could you tell me a bit more about Music Support and the services they provide? They are staffed, myself included, by people who know their own stories, who are willing to give their help and their support to anybody and everybody around the music business. All of us who work with it and for it have been in the music business ourselves. The founders have all suffered personally from mental health and addiction issues and have seen friends, colleagues and heroes lose their careers, their families and even their lives to these problems. I mean, there's no question that addiction is a killer, but it doesn't have to be. And the mission of music support is to provide the best possible support, assistance and advice to those in need. And nobody in the UK music industry should be left to suffer alone. I mean, nobody should with either mental health or addiction issues because they're not always tied together. They can be separate. Just going back before you were saying about some of the behaviours that people can notice, you know, if someone's pupils are dilated, if they're rubbing their nose, presumably sometimes it's the band members that pick up on those behaviours first. Could you tell me a bit about how addiction affects other members of a band? I think addiction in a band is a bit like addiction in a family. There is no one person who isn't affected. Now, what they choose or are able to do about it is another thing. And I know in family situations, the person who is the identified addict is often considered to be the identified patient. But there's no way the other people involved haven't been affected. They'll be hypervigilant to see what happens next. The trust will start to ebb away because once they're in a bad way, they can't stay true to their word. You know, it's kind of vaguely dodgy behaviour, really. And what happens if, for example, a couple of members of the band are using and one member decides to start getting clean? How is that process? It's complex. It's tough on the two that are still using who may not necessarily ultimately have a problem. It's also very tough on the one who's got clean because there's nothing like the habit of being around stuff. Now, that makes it complicated because... Most people who do go into full-on recovery, as Chula so eloquently stated, actually have to change what they're doing. Now, I'm not suggesting that people leave bands. I can think of very famous bands where one got sober, the others didn't, then the next one several years down the road did, then the next one several years down the road. And I think... Instead of looking at it as kind of, you know, bottom up, one person gets sober, oh, the rest aren't managing, is to look at it as top down. If one is managing, that's really inspiring and the others can take a lead from that. And presumably you were talking about this really intense touring experience and you're with these people 24 hours a day and, you know, you're travelling the world. I'd imagine that boundaries probably become a bit of an issue in those working relationships. I mean, I had no boundaries when I was in the music business because what is work ultimately is also pleasure. You know, I worked at Island Records in the 70s and you'd finish a day at your desk and you'd go down to the fallout shelter and listen to a bunch of musicians recording tracks. I mean, you just didn't go home. So there's the first boundary. 
obliterated. There's no separation between church and state. You know, backstage is a huge area that, you know, if you're ever there for the loadout, there's a bunch of people wheeling flight cases and God help you, if you've got a bottle of champagne in your hand, you'll probably be rolled over. So the boundaries just don't exist. I think they've got better technologically because these huge tours don't happen quite so much. But I think the biggest internal boundary, it's not so much where Tula was going necessarily because he was much more general and holistic about it. But for me, the biggest effort is the internal boundary where you learn who you are. And despite and in spite of everything and everyone, you manage to retain that internal boundary of being okay with yourself. And so in this kind of intense working environment, how do you think musicians can avoid problematic relationships with substances? Well, I think it's naive to think that there won't be any substances around. I think then it's a personal boundary on whether you've ever tried them, whether you're tempted, whether you want to, where you're at, who the team is around you that will support you. Not everyone morphs into one. You can do substances I mean, and I'm not suggesting this, don't do this at home, and not emerge with a problem. But you can do substances and if you don't do them, you won't have a problem. If you do do them, you might. So you've you've lowered the odds of, of getting through it. And Tula actually talked of having tried other things. It wasn't until he tried the big one that he really got into trouble. And he, you know, said he got into trouble quite quickly. I mean, addiction takes people down incredibly fast. And the whole point of relapse is because it's a progressive disease, the way I believe and was taught, you know, relapses are really serious. Binge drinking is is not a good idea either because it all stresses the system and the brain chemistry and relationships too. Relationships take a dive. If someone is in a band and, and they are concerned about a fellow band member, how would you recommend that they approach that conversation? I would recommend, actually, that the person concerned call for help for themselves so that they can support themselves with the concern and perhaps put a little bit of the focus back on themselves. What is the concern? What's coming up for you? And then based on that help, then see how they can then help the other person. If you need help with any of the issues that have been raised in today's episode, you'll find links and signposts to all the services mentioned by Chula and Adriana in the podcast description. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts as it helps other people to find us. And don't forget you can get in touch on social media at Elevate Music Pod on Twitter and Instagram. This podcast was produced by Elevate Music and Listen in partnership with Help Musicians. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.